heard Andy in particular talking about the trials that he was under and how he grew to trust despite what he was feeling, despite what he was seeing, trusting that the gospel is true. See, God wants more than works of the law. He wants more than external obedience. Rather, he wants our whole heart. I think of David's confession in Psalm 51 where he says, you don't want sacrifices, but you want a a broken and contrite heart. Therefore, if the heart is one, brothers and sisters, we don't have to worry about the externals. Why? Because they're going to naturally follow. It is in this way that we actually, we don't nullify the law, but we fulfill the law. And it's through Christ God has brought us into relationship with them. And this relationship produces a love for God and a love for neighbor. You heard that in Melissa's testimony. She closed, even though I do not see him, I what? I love him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And this is why Paul says love fulfills the law in Romans 13, 10. For in Christ, brothers and sisters, and this is where I want us to start honing in back into Romans 7, we are not held captive to the law. We've been released from the law by the love of Christ. And so Paul calls it in chapter 6, we're now slaves of righteousness, but to the Corinthians he says, for the love of Christ controls us. We're not under the law anymore. We're under the law of Christ which is the law of love. And so if I love God and I have that relationship with Him that is cultivated through worship and it manifests itself in love of neighbor, well, then I have fulfilled the heart of the law, which Jesus says can be summed up in this, love God and love neighbor. So if this is what has has been accomplished for us in Christ, that we have died to the law, we've been released from the law, so that we may walk in newness of life under the love of Christ which is compelling us, why is it that you and I still struggle? Why is it that you and I still battle sin? If as Paul says in Romans 6, 4, I have died with Christ in order to walk in newness of life, why do I still? still gratify the desires of the flesh that is my sinful passions why do i feel them aroused well the simple answer is because we're still in these mortal bodies we're still a flesh and the power of sin is still present and brothers and sisters it will be until the resurrection i often talk to to Christians who are struggling. Talk to people like Andy 30 years ago. Struggling. If I'm a Christian, why am I under this weight of depression? If I'm a Christian, why do I keep struggling with these sins? And this is where despair comes in. Well, I must not be a Christian then because I don't measure up. That's the condemnation of the law coming down. Where Paul is calling us, do not look to yourself. Do not be looking inwardly, measuring yourself, because all you're going to see is a very ugly picture. No, rather, we are to turn our eyes and fix them on Christ. 
The reason we struggle with sin is because we are in the flesh. However, we believe that we're righteous because the gospel says we are. That's why this is by faith, right? I believe that I have been declared righteous despite what I see in myself, what I feel in myself, and what I know about myself. I believe the gospel. The problem for us, the reason we struggle, yes, because we're in flesh, is that we like to turn to those things I can feel and I can see to correct what I know. That's what Pastor Joshua read from Hebrews chapter 12. And it says, we have not come to a mountain that can be touched with trembling and fear. We haven't come to that mountain that that you can go and you could go to that day and you can touch. No, we have come to a heavenly mountain. One you cannot see right now. And the gospel call is, do you believe that reality? That we're a heavenly people. That I have died and I have been raised with Christ. I don't see that. And brothers and sisters, I don't feel that sometimes. Most of the time. Do you feel like like you're resurrected? Do you feel like you have come into the presence of the Lord all the time? Of course not. But where we struggle is we like to go to those things that I can control. And that's when we go back to law. And we begin to measure ourselves by what we can see, what we can measure. And either we will listen to it and we will be in utter despair. Or we just won't listen closely enough and we'll think we're actually more righteous than everybody else. The problem is, is measuring ourselves against the law. And this is what we learn in Romans 7. The law, and by the law I mean the Mosaic law. Think the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about traffic laws. I'm not talking about rules at work or parents not having any rules in your home. We're talking about growing in sanctification, fighting sin by the Mosaic law. Ten Commandments. Think that. What we learn in Romans 7 is that this law is not the solution for our sin and our spiritual growth. The law is not the solution for your sin or your spiritual growth. And the reason being is that the law does not and it cannot address what really matters, and that's your heart. It can't get to the heart. It's outside of us. God's law has got to get inside of us, and the Ten Commandments don't do that. It does not cultivate a relationship with God. You heard that again in that passage in Romans 12. They fled. Do not, we can't bear to listen to that one speak to us, because even if our dog runs up and touches that mountain, it's going to be struck dead. That's the law, brothers and sisters. And we so like to go back to it, and yet it never satisfies. It brings fear, brings despair, it brings depression. Because it wasn't meant to be our solution. And it leaves us to ourselves, and the picture is ugly. And this is Paul's purpose in Romans 7, 13 through 25, to paint a picture of utter hopelessness under the law. That's why I've entitled the sermon, I Fought the Law, and the Law Won. Because you won't win this battle. 
You can try as you might, and the best you'll come out is delusional. That's the best you got. More likely you'll come out completely depressed if you listen to the law. Paul is looking back from a Christian perspective on his life in pursuit of keeping the law. And in doing so, he presents himself for us as a representative of all who would live under the law, what that would be like. And as one insightfully has written, the law, and this is what Paul's wanting to tell us, the law tells us the story about ourselves that we're unable to tell and unwilling to hear. It takes us on a journey to hell through the true knowledge of ourselves so that through the knowledge of Christ we might be raised to new life. Let me just reread that first sentence. The law, and this is what Paul is doing, he's letting the law tell him the story about himself, which actually is the story of you and me because we're all in Adam. The law tells us the story about ourselves that we are unable to tell and unwilling to hear. So this morning, as we come to this passage, I want us to listen to the law. I want us to listen to what it says. I want us to come to terms with the reality that, brothers and sisters, it's not your protector. It's not your guide. It's your executioner. That's what the law is. Law is not your protector. It's not your guide. It's your executioner. The letter kills, Paul tells the Corinthians, but the Spirit gives life. And in so doing, we will no longer measure our spiritual growth by means of the law, but by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's rescued us from the law. I mean, we just sang songs about it. You fulfilled the law. Yet I hear Christians talk like the gospel is the law. We fight for the law, but the law is the, is, the, is the weapon of death. So as we look in this passage, we're going to see three things about the law that it tells us. That we know about ourselves, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's going to tell us a story that we, by nature, by instinct, understand. And that is, number one, that the law is good. And you might be saying, What? After everything you just said, the law's good? Yep, the law's good. Number two, I'm not good. And number three, I am doomed. That's what the law does. The law is good. Everyone, every person ever born knows instinctively that God's law is good. Now, people might say they hate God's law, but Paul says in Romans 1, that's just a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. It's living in denial of what they do know. Our own experience, as we're going to see, actually betrays the lie that we try to convince ourselves of. And here's the lie. That we're good and God's not. That's the lie of humanity. We know His law is good. We know His righteous character is good. But we convince ourselves the opposite. That's what Isaiah speaks of. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, right? This is what the law reveals in us. That's, what, that's the game we're playing. We flip the tables. We say God is evil and I am good. 
And we actually believe the lie to the point that we don't know any different. But Paul is going to say, the law tells us the story we can't tell about ourselves. Our own experience tells us this. We all know what Paul says in verse 13. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? And he says, it's not the law in itself that is the agent of death. It's sin working through the law. We saw that last Sunday. And when the law comes, it just merely exposes sin. And it shows it to actually be immeasurably deep. So if you listen to the law, you go to the law, all it's going to do is uncover more sin. That's all it does. And those who break the law die. So that's how the good law executes death. So this is what Paul means when he says sin produced through what is good. Do you see that in verse 13? Sin produced through what is good, death. It goes through what is good. So if you want to go through the law, you're going to die. That's what he's saying. And he then explains how we know that God's law is good and spiritual in verses 14 through 17. And this is what he's trying to say here, okay? Sin Sinners actually want to do God's law, but they can't carry it out. They can't do it. He says that in verse 15, For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Can't do it. Verse 18, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You've been there? You've been there? Like, I know what's right, but everything else inside me says, don't, I can't do it. I don't want to do what's right. What is going on? That's the law exposing us. That's what's going on. And that experience tells us we actually know that the law is good. I think Paul is actually giving a fuller and more particular unpacking of Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul says, sinners are those who know God exists, know that they should honor and give him thanks, but they refuse to do so. And they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And instead, they worship the creature rather than the creator. That happens through general revelation. Well, we're getting specific revelation through the law, which gives us more detail, and all it does is expose, and it leaves you without excuse. Sinners are made in God's image. And being made in God's image means that we know something true that's outside of us. That's why there's so many religions in the world. Because we're all made to be worshipers. We're all made to be worshipers. Even the atheist worships a God of his own fashioning. Doesn't call it God, but calls it science or the universe. Sometimes Sarah and I, when we were in college, we, we used to go door to door at the uh, university complex apartments, and we, we, we got in touch with a PhD student at University of Kentucky who taught in the science department. You know what he told us? He said, I think we're all a laboratory experience by uh, uh, aliens. Those, that's who created us, and that's who we're trying to figure out. Have you ever seen that show, Ancient Aliens? That's where that all is coming from. 
all wired to look to something beyond ourselves. We're all wired that way. Yet, the, humani- the story of humanity is we can't carry it out. We worship false things. We will make up aliens creating us before we will even acknowledge the God of the universe who is the true God. Adultery is just another form of theft. And one who takes the spouse of another will cry for justice when someone does the same to them. Right? Usually that's in the form of murder. Or just think about stealing. Everybody knows it's wrong to steal. No one says, I'm going to run a political campaign that says stealing's great and I'm going to legalize it. No one does that. Even the career criminal wants justice when someone steals from them what they love. Even the the murderer wants justice for the one who murders whom they love or tries to murder them. The sexually immoral know that their fornication and sexual perversities are wrong. That's why they hide it or they group up in communities to tell them all the same lie, we're good and all those who tell us otherwise are evil. It's the flipping. It's the lie. It's, the, it's trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, you and I know this in our own experience. The first time we, maybe you think of a particular sin in your life, we were like Adam and Eve and we ran and hide. Right? We covered it in shame, Right? We seek to cover our shame. Why do we keep, seek to cover our shame? Because deep down we know, I didn't want to do that. That's why we cover it. And this very act shows what Paul means in verse 16. I agree that the law is good. That's built into who we are as image bearers. And so if I know that the law is good, then I also know that I'm bad. I also know that. When we listen to the law, we know that nothing good dwells in us. That's what Paul says in verse 18. For I know that nothing dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good. He's playing a play on words. The law is good, and I know I am not good. Do you see that? Even though in my conscience I know the law is good, strangely enough, I can't carry it out. We've seen this vividly illustrated over the past year, haven't we? In all the sexual abuse cases coming out. I mean, how many news anchors stood up there and told you, I'm standing for righteousness? Or news executives, or whole news networks, standing themselves upon, we're going to give you what's true. And we're going to promote what's right. Or politicians, or our president, who's going to stand up for righteousness, but their life is full of immorality and injustice. I think a reckoning is coming. The Lord is exposing our hypocrisy. And then not to even mention the movie stars, right? Who've used their platform to speak truth, sometimes good things, promote for social justice, but yet their life was filled with it. They know what's right. And here's the irony. The same news organizations are now crucifying these people, their very own, I think rightly, condemning these actions, exposing them for what they are. But here's the irony. They do them too. We just don't know about it yet. 
We don't know if they're doing those specific sins, but they're just as unrighteous. And here's what Paul is saying. Their very words will condemn them on that day. You knew this was unrighteous because here's your show where you went and railed against them, but here was your life. I know that the law is good, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. Brothers and sisters, lest we get too high on our mighty horse, that is true of us as well. We can be self-righteous in condemning the world for their unrighteousness and fail to see that apart from God's grace there, I would be also. And if I listen to the law closely, my heart's often there. I'm just as wicked. We just don't want to admit it because we're ashamed. We can cry out with Paul and say, for I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's what the law does. And we know it. So what does the law do? The law brings the future judgment to the present. It brings it to right now. And it lays us bare before it in all our shame and sin. And it says you're an idolater. It says you're a coveter. You're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're a murderer. You're disobedient to your parents. You are a sinner and you will die. That's what the law does. That's the law. And so when Paul says in verse 20, look at that. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What, what is he saying here? Is he, is he somehow trying to divide himself up in two different people and, hey, that's the devil made me do it. I didn't really do it, so I'm off the hook. That's, that's not what he's trying to do. No, what Paul is describing here is the conflict of the one's guilty conscience held captive to indwelling sin. It's the experience that we all know there is something deeply wrong with me. What Paul is, is telling us, the story that the law tells us, whether we consciously recognize it or not, or unconsciously, is that sin is alien to creatures made in the image of God. And we feel it. That's why you can witness to people by appealing to their experience. I once asked uh, when I was in college, I was at some conference, and, I, and I, I got up and I asked a question. I said, how do we address sin when when people don't want to talk about sin. And the conference speaker said, I actually differ. I think they do want to talk about sin. Just talk about their experience. Talk about their hurt. Talk about their pain. You don't have to convince them they're sinners. They already know there's something deeply wrong. The law just exposes that and tells us the story that we cannot tell about ourselves and are unwilling to hear. You've likely experienced that, Right? Maybe there's been a desire that has just popped in your heart that scares you death, even as a Christian. How could I have thought that? Oh my word, get that out of my, my head. You ever experienced something like that? Well, of course, we don't tell anybody because it's so frightening. We even want to deny it. Something's wrong with me. Maybe you've even cried out, what is wrong with me, Lord? 
Maybe you look back even before you were a Christian and, and you're, you're battling with these sins, these shames, and, and these guilts that were all over you and you're laying at bed at night weeping. Because you're like, how could I ever tell anybody what I'm experiencing? That's the crushing nature of the law coming upon your heart. And left to ourselves, Paul wants us to see, we cannot escape it. You go to the law for more, it's just going to say, actually, it's worse than you think. It tells a story we can't tell. It tells a story we're unable and unwilling to hear. And so knowing that nothing good dwells in us, the law then tells us I'm doomed. That's what the law does. And in verses 21 through 23, Paul restates what he's already said about our experience under the law. Look at verse 23. What does it do? It makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's talking about this schizophrenia, that, that consciousness of guilt. Or I delight in the law of God, strangely enough. I show the fact because I try to hide it when I don't do what it says. But with all my might, there is this war that's waging in my soul, and I lose. You notice he doesn't win in this battle. He never comes out and says, but I finally prevailed. And I see many of you laboring hard, weary, broken in utter despair because you're trying to win. You're fighting the law, and you learn every day the law wins. You learn every day. You, you compare yourself to what you can see. You, you look at the person on the other side of the aisle, and you see them singing, and you assume, well, they don't have any problems like me. I must be worthless. Again, measuring yourself by a standard that is not the standard by which Christ measures you. You start comparing yourself or even some absurd law or level of attainment that you think you should have already been at. And you never measure up. And if you do measure up, you're severely delusional. But what the law helps us see is I'm doomed. It opens up reality for us. We know law, the law is good. In fact, in some sense, we delight in it. But even this acknowledgement is overwhelmed by the reality I'm captive to sin. It dwells in me. And herein lies the purpose of the law. Think of it like this. It's like a boa constrictor. You ever seen one of those things? Pretty scary. A boa constrictor wrapped all around you. And the more you fight, it just waits. And the moment you take out a breath, it squeezes just a little bit harder. And you keep fighting, you dig into it just a little bit more, and it gets tighter, and it gets tighter. And the more you keep going down that road, the tighter it gets till it squeezes the last breath out of you. Some of you live your Christian life like that. Some of you are trying to do it by law, not a relationship with Christ. And when this happens, we cry out with Paul in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me? What a hopeless cry. Maybe you've been there. And if you try to fight the law, it wins every time. But here's what Paul is trying to teach us. The only way to escape the law, get this, is to let the law kill you. Let the law kill you. 
Don't fight it. We know Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know that verse, right? I've crucified the flesh with its desires. But the verse before that, we usually don't go to. This is what he says in verse 19. For through the law, that's a key phrase, for through the law I died to the law. Through the law I died to the law. Why? So that I might live to God. And then that's the rest of the verse. That's the other side of the equation. Here's the reality everybody has to come to. The law is good. I am not. I am doomed. And we cry the cry of verse 24, wretched man that I am. That's how you die to the law. Dying to the law is listening to what it says about us and agreeing with it. I agree. I'm wretched. That's amazing grace, right? How sweet the sound. To save a what? A wretch. A wretch. So coming to this conclusion, this is where the hope of Christ shines. And that was the purpose of the law, to bring utter hopelessness so when Christ comes, (gasps) there's life. I'm breathing my last breath and I have died and I'm now resurrected. The last view I saw was the serpent's head swallowing me and out of the darkness shined light and it's Christ. And I, I turn to him out of great love and affection and I go to him and I say with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the response. And now, what's that response out of? Not out of duty. It's out of gratitude and love. It kills the flesh. It slaughters the flesh. And now you have those testimonies we just heard out of Andy and Melissa. I love him. Despite all the mess that's around, I love him. And now that love compels me. It controls me. And now I live according to that law, the law of love. The gospel says, yes, you and I are under the law and we're doomed. But under grace, your sins are not counted against you. You notice the difference there? It's a declaration. We are now somehow united spiritually with Christ, and our sins are wiped clean despite the fact of what I feel right now, which I feel like a sinner. When I look at my life, it's a sinner. And when I consider myself and what the law tells me, I know I'm a sinner. I know I am. And if you stay right here, you'll either be prideful or despair. You've got to get over here. And if you're, the only way you can do that is stop looking inwardly to yourself. This introspection, measurements, laws, I've got to attain this. This is what's holy, and this is not. And you've got all these lists of rules that you never keep, but then you try to impose on somebody else. And here's the, here's the Pharisee come. Well, then there's going to be chaos. No, there's another part of the equation we've already seen. Grace and the Spirit works righteousness. So let me explain that. We all know it's wrong to kill, murder, and steal. What's the problem? You don't actually love those people. But the gospel comes and the love of God is poured into your heart that you now love that person. You say, I could never commit adultery with that person because I love them and I love their spouse. Or I could never steal from that person or kill that person. Why? Because I love them. And I say, sometimes I don't. So how do, how, do I, how do I battle? How do I get there? 
Well, as Christians, what Paul is going to tell us, well, don't turn back to the law. Don't murder. Well, that doesn't help me. Well, don't commit adultery. That doesn't help the desires right now. It just seems the more I remind myself of that, it just keeps stirring up just a little bit more. Stop looking at the computer. Don't do that. Well, that just seems to stir it up more. I know some of you are there. And yet we go back to the law, and Paul would say to the Galatians who were turning back to the law, do you not listen to what the law says? Galatians 4.21. All those who live by law must keep everything the law says. You want to play that game? I don't. And all those under the law die, and they become a slave to sin. So how, how then are we to fight sin? Paul doesn't really get to that in Romans 7. This is where Romans 8 comes into play. We're not going to get there until January because we're going to take a Christmas series off. But not to leave you in despair. We don't fight sin, brothers and sisters, by this constant navel gazing. We don't fight sin by constantly looking at myself and comparing myself to what I think I should be at or looking at the other person. That is all earthly. It's, it's, it's inwards. It's inward looking. And already I know what the law tells me. There's nothing good that dwells in me. So you're not going to find any glimmer of hope if you do that. You're not. So we can't be fighting sin by looking to ourselves, but we fight sin by looking outwardly to Christ. Our righteousness is what theologians call an alien righteousness. It's outside of us. It's declared. It's imputed to our account. And the gospel says, I believe what the gospel says about me, despite what I feel, see, and know about myself. So what does that look like, looking upward to Christ? Well, it looks like cultivating our love for him. And I venture to say, if you're a believer today, when you are worshiping, and I'm not just talking about lips just rolling off your tongue, when you're worshiping, doesn't sin just seem to drift into the past? When you're walking with him, when you're in the spirit, fellowship with him, those things that the flesh so deeply longs for, they, they grow strangely dim, right? As the hymn writer says. Problem is, we come down and then we go back and it's there. That's going to be the battle until resurrection. And the solution isn't, well then not worship and go to the law, it's go back to worship. Let's go back to cultivating a love for the Savior. And so we turn to Christ by faith, believing what Christ says about us, despite what we see, feel, and know to be true of ourselves. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, this has all been a great exposition of this, these two verses, 1.16 through 17, for I'm not ashamed. It's amazing, the gospel doesn't bring shame. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? Something you can see, something you can taste, something you can go touch? No. From faith for faith. Meaning it starts with faith and it ends with faith. It's all by faith. I'm trusting, I'm believing what the scriptures say. And that's why it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, not sight. 
Who hopes for what they can see, Paul will later say. No, we hope for what we cannot see. That is our faith. I'm trusting what the gospel says, which is a declaration of my righteousness. That's how we fight sin. So how do I increase my faith, you might say? Because that's where we struggle, isn't it? That's really where the battle is. You do realize that if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you're no more righteous than the, the believer who just came to faith yesterday. You don't grow in righteousness. That's what the law says. Grow in righteousness. You can't. So stop trying. Okay, so what do I do? I grow in faith. That's the difference between the 50-year-old believer and the new believer. They grow in faith. They believe. And they've gone through the trials. They bear the battle scars. They've been there. They have endured. That's Romans 5, remember? Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, verse 3, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. What's that character? It's the tested genuineness of your faith. And character produces hope, and this hope does not put us to shame. The law brings you back to shame. But we rejoice in the glory of God. We rejoice in the grace in which we stand. And we continually trust as trial after trial after trial, whether that's famine, whether that's persecution, whether that's our stinking battle with our flesh. And we see how God has preserved us through it. And year after year, day after day, month after year, or day, month after month, I got myself all jumbled up. I can now look back and I can look at 17 years of being a believer and I have certainly not arrived. I know more about my sin than I've ever known. I feel like I'm a worse sinner now than I did 17 years ago. Why? Because I listened to the law. But I don't listen to it to try and keep it. I listen to it so that I will crucify the flesh and I'll die to myself and I put my only hope in Christ. And the Lord has taught me through these 17 years how to trust. How not to get up tight? And if you find those seasoned saints, you find that they are those who rest. They are those who rest because they have much faith. So brothers and sisters, let's conclude with this thought and let's go to the table. And when we go to the table, that's what we're declaring. This is something we can taste and we can see, but it is a reflection, a representation of something that we can't see. That's why he gives us the symbols. We see the word now. And in taking this Lord's Supper, we're not saying, I'm going to perfect my sinful flesh today. That's not what we're saying. I'm going to try harder this afternoon. I'm going to start doing it right from now on. That's... That's not what we say at the Lord's table. Now at the Lord's table, I'm saying that the flesh can neither be reformed or rehabilitated. It must be crucified. This dying flesh must be crucified. And it has been crucified in Christ. And I'm believing that truth despite the fact that I can sit here and touch my skin. Now some of you are like, this all is just this is crazy nonsense. 
How do I, how do I move from there? Well, it's hearing the word of Christ, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Start reading the Gospels. And I'm not giving you this as law. I'm giving you this to cultivate your love. Do you read the Word? Do you go to it? Do you look at the Scriptures and you see yourself, I'm that blind man who now sees. I'm that lame man who now walks. I'm that leper who's now been cleansed. I'm now that prostitute who's no longer filthy. That's my story in the lives of others. And the more I see myself there and I listen to the great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, I loved much because I've been forgiven much. Now I don't want to do anything but follow my Savior. And that'll never lead me to law-breaking. It's the other way around that we get caught up. I'm going to keep the law and then somehow I'll be acceptable to God. That's not the way it works. He's made us acceptable, and therefore, out of that great truth, I now don't ever want to go back to that. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll go to the Lord's table and sing and declare of these things. Lord, these are weighty truths, and due to the weakness of our own flesh, Lord, they are they're difficult to understand. Lord, I, I resonate with Peter who reflects on Paul's language and, and says that he writes of things that are hard to understand. Lord, this, this is hard to get. This is hard to grasp. But Lord, I ask that you increase our faith. Lord, we, we, we don't turn to ourselves. We turn to you. And as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, may we look outside of ourselves, knowing the truth of what these elements declare that you were broken for us. That you bled for us. And by your work, you have made us clean. And you say that, you, that we are righteous in your name. And may that great truth propel us. May that love control us. And that we may actually fulfill the law. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen. As we sing and Nathan leads us, let's stand. Amen. Thank you, Brother Chase. Are you going to stand with us? Um, don't want to preach a whole other sermon, but I do want to guide our thoughts. As we do come together, uh, this is a sign. This is a physical sign of what we as believers have uh, joined in together to demonstrate our faith and our trust in Christ. This is a symbol of his body that was broken for us, his blood that was spilled for us. So if you are not a believer, if that's not you, uh, if you don't have a testimony like uh, the, from the two we heard this morning, um, if that's not you, then at this time we would encourage you to let the plate pass. Uh, this is something for believers, and uh, so we'd encourage you, if, uh, if you're not a believer, if you're not in good standing with a local church of a like faith and practice with this one, then we would encourage you to let the, the plate and let the, the bread and the cup pass you by as they come. And uh, Paul gives a stern warning in 1 Corinthians that uh, those who eat and drink unworthily uh, are eating judgment on themselves. So we want to spare you from that. So it is, it is for your benefit that we issue to you that warning that uh, it is better for you to let the cup pass as it comes by rather than to do that to yourself. Um, but as we do, as believers come together, 
uh, just a thought from the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every year as they made sacrifices, it was a reminder of their sin. And it was a reminder that those sacrifices were never enough, and it was intended to drive the people to God. Paul says that the law is a servant to drive us to Christ. How does it do that? It shows us our unworthiness. It shows us that we need the Lord. We need something more than just a sacrifice. So as the men pass the plate, let's sing together. This way you stand up on you Jesus 
Continuing in Hebrews 10, says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skipping down, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ, in his sacrifice, finished the work that the Old Testament sacrifices never did. And so today we partake in that. We show our participation, our union in that as we take the bread. Would you eat with me? And in Hebrews 9, the author writes, But when Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So now as the men pass the cup, we can be thankful knowing that it is not by the blood of bulls and goats that Christ made this sacrifice, but it is his own blood that we symbolize here this morning. The mystery of the cross I cannot Agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect holy one, the cross the bit of cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus' name. Father's wrath. Really satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, 
is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's us. That is why we are here. That is what we participate in. As 
why we gather together every Sunday morning, to participate in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, I invite you to join with me this morning. Lord, I pray, God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come to celebrate your death, to celebrate your resurrection, Lord, to celebrate your grace. We know we fight the law and we lose, but Lord, you have not left us there. God, your grace has given us a victory that the law never could. So God, we pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds with this truth. Fill us with your grace. And God, as, uh, as Paul says, as often as we do this, we do proclaim your death until he comes. Lord, we pray that we would proclaim your death until you come back. Lord, go with us this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name.